We're going to be having a Christmas service tomorrow morning at 11 a.m., so kind of save the Christmas sermon for tomorrow on this Christmas Eve. We continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. It's actually amazing how every single year the text that we end up on in our sermon series just so happens to fit nicely with, uh, I guess, the season that we're in or whatever we're celebrating. Uh, but we're in Mark 11 today, and we're going to be reading Mark 11, 1 to 11, the first 11 verses. And this, of course, is the account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Entry, entry into the gates of Jerusalem as we remember Christ and his entry into the world. I think it's a, sort of a nice parallel, if you will, uh, as we uh, go into today's text, as we remember Christ this Christmas season. So please turn your Bibles to Mark 11, verses 1 to 11. I'll read from my Bible. You can certainly follow in yours. This is the word of God. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they, un and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. Many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Amen. Today's sermon is entitled, Hosanna in the highest. Let me quickly pray and then we'll start. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what has been preserved in the gospel of Mark for us to read today that which was passed down through generations of the church, recorded for us and ultimately preserved uh, through scribal methods and manuscript methods. We thank you for it. We thank you, of course, ultimately, it's not human technique that preserved this, but your authority, your providence, your sovereign will, and uh, your desire to have your will in this form of special revelation preserved for us that in, in the form that we call the Holy Bible. We thank you for your word, and we admit that there is much to it that is mystery to us, and so we ask for the Spirit to work in us at this time to reveal the truth of that which is contained within, even a narrative so simple as this. Teach us at this time. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Just about seven months ago, back in May, we observed something in the world that hadn't been seen for 81 years. I don't know about you, but I don't assume that any of us here are of 81 years years of age, right? No one, I assume. <laughs> Doesn't seem like it anyways. If you are, it's extraordinary. Uh, but for 81 years, we hadn't seen something like this, or ever, before, or ever in our lifetime anyways. The coronation of a new ruler in the British kingdom. The king's coronation of King Charles III was watched by over 18 million viewers worldwide. The monarch's coronation begins, of course, with a recognition and oath. If, you ever, if you've ever seen did anyone watch the coronation? You don't have to raise hands, but if you did, you know what I'm talking about. It begins with sort of this uh, crowd of politicians and uh, noblemen and people of importance within the British kingdom. And the king is presented, and a decree is made, and uh, they recognize this 
new king or this new monarch, right? In the previous case, it was the queen. And they make an oath, right, to dedicate uh, allegiance to this king. Then there's an anointing, then there's a crowning, an homage, and then a procession out from Buckingham Palace uh, to Westminster Abbey, if you're familiar with that. And then, of, and if you've seen it, he's actually, or the monarch, is um, taken on a golden carriage. It's this really beautiful circular golden carriage. The new monarch then traditionally has to have a procession out into the streets of London, into the public streets of London, uh, so that as many civilians and people can see their new monarch. The whole thing steeps with tradition, with ritual, with splendor. There's something magnificent about the grand. There's something so alluring to the human eye and soul, to the things that are great in our perception and in our sights. This is what a king's entrance ought to look like, don't you think? This grand spectacle of an event. It's, in a very real way, worthy of the 18 million viewers, right, globally. Spectacular in every way, filled to the brim with all the frills that mankind can conjure. Surely a king deserves such fine things. And a king should be revered in such ways by his followers. But in today's text, we too have a king. We have a king entering to the cries of many, shouts of joy, shouts of expectation. But how lowly this entrance is in comparison to King Charles III. It does not have the sheen of a new king, the glamour of royalty, it lacks in so many ways. In fact, if anything, this is a record of what it does not include in the triumphant entry of a king. It lacks in so many ways. And surely this is not how the king of kings is meant to be greeted. And yet it appears that is exactly what Mark wants us to see. You see, in Matthew... Matthew mentions the buzz of the city, the stirring of the crowd in anticipation of the arrival of the king of the Jews. In Luke, there's a crowd that is enamored to have Jesus arrive. They shout with loud voices, and there's a great energy to his entry. John focuses heavily on the connection to the Old Testament text and the fulfillment that was Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. And Mark really does mirror a lot of those elements as well. A little bit more subtle, but they're there. There's something uniquely different about Mark's rendition. It's not to say that there wasn't this stirring or this energy and vibe within the crowd. There's a simmering down in Mark's rendering of the excitement in the tone of the text. It's not to say that the excitement wasn't there. He just wants to simmer it. And what we see is that Mark wants us not to be caught up in sort of the spectacular frills, but rather on the king himself, Christ himself who has come. There's an irony to what is being proclaimed about Jesus, and Mark's intent is to sober our understanding to the true importance of not only the event of this entry, as important as it is, but rather the more important reality of the one who is entering to do an extraordinary work that will mark all of history. It's remarkable that from this point onwards in Mark's gospel, the entire content the entire rest of Mark's gospel. You know, we've seen Jesus traveling region to region into the Decapolis. We've seen him preach and teach and do miracles to the Gentiles. We've seen him do ministry in Galilee. We've seen him travel here and there. 
rest of Mark's gospel from here onwards, from 11 to 16, is all passion narrative. It's all going to climax at the cross. It will surround Jesus' final months and days in and around Jerusalem in anticipation of his crucifixion. That's nearly a third of Mark's gospel. John does the same in which almost half, nearly half of his gospel from chapter 12 onward anticipates the passion narrative. He enters Jerusalem in John 12, and then it's all passion until Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. You understand what the gospel writers viewed as important in the life and ministry of Christ. The healings, the teachings, important. But central to all and everything that Christ came to do was, of course, the very mission he came to accomplish, the work on the cross. And as a Christian, I'm sure you're sitting here and you can understand why much of the Gospels would be occupied with such content. The cross is so central to our faith and to the narrative of Christ's life and ministry, for it's the very purpose for which he came. And there lies Mark's particular lens. Remember that Mark's gospel back in chapter 1 started with an Old Testament passage in Isaiah. Remember the very first verses of this gospel. Very few people remember this about Mark's gospel. They think it just kind of jumps into the virgin birth and other things. In fact, he omits the entire nativity. What he starts with is Isaiah 6, 9-10. That was the lens of this whole gospel, if you remember. Mark's foundation or lens through which he wants the reader and listener to observe the narrative of Christ, is the Old Testament. And seeing Christ through the scriptures prophetically claim the coming of this Messiah. The very way, perhaps, how a Christian ought to and should see Christ at all as fulfillment of God's word and promise. The Westminster Confession of Faith begins not with the doctrine of God, but with the doctrine of the authority of scripture. Chapter 1 to show that it is God's word that stands as authoritative revelation to man, that it is his word that sheds light on all things that we know of God and of Christ. And so what do we see in this entry narrative of Mark today? God's word. That's what we ought to see. Let's highlight some of those examples. I got three examples for you. Look at verse one. Mark uncharacteristically provides geographical detail, and he mentions this place called the Mount of Olives. Now, immediately, you're probably thinking, oh, it's a mountain of olives. That's cool, right? Um, likely so. I'm, I'm sure there was a mount of some sort and was probably occupied with a lot of olive trees. This place is of great significance to the Jewish people. If you're an Old Testament scholar, you would know this. Why was it important for the Jewish people? Well, it was important for a multitude of reasons. It is, firstly, a site of worship that's mentioned in 2 Samuel 15. It's a place where it was uh, a place of great worship, in fact. It's a place that the Jews would remember as a place of worship, a place where God would be honored and glorified. It is also where uh, Ezekiel saw a vision of God's glory, listen to this, God's glory resting after departing Jerusalem. So if you read Ezekiel 11, you'll see it right there. The glory of God departs Jerusalem, leaves Jerusalem, and goes to the Mount of Olives. There's some significance there tied to the glory of God. And then in Zechariah 14, this is where it's most explicitly mentioned for us. Zechariah 14, the Mount of Olives is mentioned as the final site of judgment. The final site of judgment. Many Jewish scholars and teachers have laid claim that this Mount of Olives, this place 
was closely tied to Jewish messianic expectation that the Messiah would come from this place. And so that is where we find Jesus, from the Mount of, Ol- Mount of Olives going to Jerusalem. So in Mark's gospel, get this, it's almost a reversal of Ezekiel 11, isn't it? The Messiah approaches Jerusalem, goes to Jerusalem from this very place. He takes the glory of God, in a sense, from the Mount of Olives into the gates of Jerusalem. Then look at verses 2 to 6. Of course, this is the sort of famous cult episode, right? The donkey episode. We see the famous narrative of Jesus and this cult, a donkey. We see this mentioned in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, with little to no distinction in their sort of telling of the tale. Some have accredited Jesus' knowledge in this scene as a demonstration of divine knowledge that he knew these things would happen. Others argue that Jesus was familiar with this area and simply knew that the cult would be there and that they would ask of it and and that they would know and recognize Jesus as being the Kyrios, the Lord. But whatever the case, our concern is not with um, whether this was divine knowledge or not. We can certainly conclude that Jesus does have divine knowledge and certainly also conclude that in his humanity he was familiar with this area and people knew of him. That's not the important aspect of this text but it's rather with the image of the cult itself, the donkey itself. This is much more heavily emphasized in Matthew and John. But the cult is the very animal we see mentioned in Zechariah 4.4. So if you go to Matthew and John's rendition of the story, they quote Zechariah 4.4. Now Mark doesn't do this, but he subtly gives you the hints and clues, sort of the crumbs for you to follow, right? What does Zechariah 4.4 read? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It is evident that the early church saw the connection clearly between this verse and this episode. For Mark, his allusion back to this passage is not direct, in fact, it's more subtle, if anything, for he does not mention Zechariah 4.4 at all. However, the entire narrative speaks clearly for itself, and certainly Matthew and John made the connection after. Mark was compelled to add this detail so that we would perhaps make this connection. I think his original audience would have made a very clear connection. Again, fulfillment of God's word is at play here. As a king goes to Jerusalem, for the purpose of the work of salvation, and his humility is demonstrated and found as he rides this colt and sits on it as he enters. Not exactly, again, the grand procession of the gold, you know, uh, carriage of the England king. This is a very, very different type of procession. Finally, in verses 7 to 10, we see this praise and adoration of Jesus as he finally enters into Jerusalem. The taking off of cloaks and spreading them on the ground is something we see previously in the Bible, along with the leaves, of course. We see this in 2 Kings chapter 9, when Jehu is made king. We also see this transliterated Hebrew word, meaning, or uh, the word Hosanna, meaning save, I pray. The celebration hymn that is Psalm 118 in the Jewish tradition is quoted. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is much anticipation, and you can certainly sense it, at Jesus' arrival. And you might ask, why since 
You might ask why, since nothing prior to this in Mark's gospel indicated that such grand welcome awaited Jesus there. In fact, if you've you've been tracking with us in Mark's gospel, Jesus has spent extensive time teaching and predicting that what awaited him in Jerusalem was not this sort of grand anticipation, but rather his betrayal, his deliverance, and then his death. So what is it that these people were anticipating? John's gospel makes this even more, if you've been, please attend the Bible studies, but if you came to the Bible study, you would know this. John's gospel makes it clear to us that Jesus' fame had absolutely hit its peak as people were amazed at the particular miracle of the raising of Lazarus from the grave. And this just exploded in Galilee. Everyone was anticipating this king. Certainly the feeding and and, and the healings and, and and everything else that he did was extraordinary. But to raise a dead man from the grave in, the, in front of the eyes of personal witnesses that were there, this was extraordinary. It was undeniable to many. And so as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, there is this grand anticipation and expectation that this is the Messiah that they've really truly been waiting for. Now, I've already explained to you uh, prior in previous texts in Mark that the messianic expectation of the Jewish people of this time is very different from the Messiah that you and I understand him to be, right? We define Messiah as a savior, Jesus, who came and died for us, who rose from the grave, conquered, uh, conquered death, took away the sting of death, gives us life in union with him as we die to our sins and, and, and rise with him. This is not the messianic expectation that the Jewish people of this time had. Their expectation, as I told you earlier, was a political king, a ruler who would come in the spirit of David, right? King David, the one who conquered Goliath, right? The one who brought Israel to its fame and fortune. This would be the king that this Messiah would be, right? And so, so many other men were mistaken to be this Messiah because they were political warriors and kings. So that's what they were looking for, a warrior king. Now you might ask, why? Why does Israel need a warrior king? They're under Roman occupation. They need to get out of it. Who could conquer Rome, this Goliath, but this king, this Davidic-like king? And so that's what they thought. They thought that this new Messiah, or this Messiah to come, would be this new king like David, who would conquer their enemy for them, and restore Israel, the nation, and restore the kingdom itself. They're thinking on literal terms. They're thinking on physical terms. They're thinking on political terms. They're thinking on earthly terms. Sure, there was this idea of that the Messiah would be one who would bring redemption to God's people and restore them and bring them out of sin and all this stuff, but to die on a cross or to die at all for their sin, to be a sacrifice on their behalf, to claim victory through death, this was distant from the, any sort of Jew, any Jew of this time. I mean, you hear from the disciples. Every time Jesus predicts his, you know, he gives us his passion prediction, just like last week, how do they respond? Bewilderment. Shock, questioning, perplexity. What does this mean, right? They could not connect those dots. It was distant from them in a very real way. But Jesus' fame is at its absolute peak. People are excited to have him in. And you can imagine what kind of effect such a miracle like the raising of Lazarus might have on on a people starving for great deliverance from Roman occupation. Religious fervor, prophetic expectation, And now these signs and wonders that this man is performing seemingly confirmed in the minds of many their suspicions that this man was here to pave the way for Israel's restoration. 
And so they prepare the way for this king by throwing their cloaks and these leaves on the ground and saying, this is the king. In the eyes of the people, Jesus' entry was fulfillment of God's word. And they wouldn't be wrong, right? They're not wrong in that sense. But what they are wrong about is how he would go about fulfilling God's word. And who he was in his true identity in doing so. A redefining of Christ. A redefining of Messiah. Something we've already observed in Mark 9 and 10. Jesus is redefining these terms for them. Not only who the Messiah is, but also what it means to be a follower of him. He's been teaching his disciples all throughout this journey to Jerusalem. And finally, this king enters. I began our time today by mentioning the king's, the king of England's, coronation and the grand spectacle that it is and was, if you watched it. By the way, I think it's online. You can watch it. There's a lot of really interesting Church of England stuff in there that you could probably catch on if you're kind of familiar with your theology and, and, and biblical teaching. The spectacle of that king's coronation is remarkable when you watch it from the human perspective. Glitz and glamour, if you will. Many of your Bibles, this passage in Mark will be titled, The Triumphal Entry. And the word triumphal is both fitting and not fitting in this case. The word itself means made, carried out, or used in celebration of a great victory or achievement. That's not wrong. Jesus truly did enter Jerusalem to conquer sin and death. There was going to be an achievement and a victory, certainly true, of Christ. Certainly the arrival of Christ is triumphal in this sense, in that sense. But it is apparent that in Mark's gospel, his intention is to make less of the physical event itself and more of the person that rode on that colt. The shouting, the cloaks, the pomp and circumstance of it all is at best lackluster in Mark's gospel. Look at verse 11. After all of that, after all of that praise of this king who had come, What does Jesus do? He enters the temple. He looks around, looks at everything, and he leaves. In one verse, just doesn't acknowledge any of it. Doesn't revel in the the people shouting. Just goes straight to the temple, looks around, leaves. This is a vastly different tone than the other synoptics that make more of this event. And it's not to say that one is opposing the other. I'm sure all of their tellings are true. We're certain of this. But there's a different emphasis here in Mark's gospel. Mark hopes that readers would see Christ for who he is. And it's not to say that in Matthew and Luke you don't get that sense either. You certainly do. There's there's a purpose in their telling in those renditions and the, the mission he came for, right? But Mark wants us to see that, the work that Christ came to accomplish and the identity of who Christ is. Because the problem with this triumphal entry is in the understanding and expectation of the people that were present there. They cried out something that isn't even a psalm. It's not in anywhere in scripture. And I don't know how many of us caught on to it. Their cry is this, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, which tells you what they were thinking and hoping for. Here was Jesus, the one who would restore Israel as a kingdom that once was under David. And it will be restored 
as a kingdom like that of the one that David established. But that's not what Jesus came for, and that's not what the Messiah generally would come to do uh, in accordance with the Old Testament. But thus was the expectation of these people. Jesus came not to restore the kingdom of David, but to establish the kingdom of God. A kingdom with no end. A kingdom that would welcome in all nations and people and would be one that would never fail and never cease. Jesus' mission was far greater. And he would not do this by the sword or might or demonstration of power. Instead, his claim to victory would be through his own death on a cross. That by his death, his loss of life, those who place their faith in him as the Son of God, as an atonement for their sin, the one who takes sin away by dying on our behalf, to them would be triumphant entry for them into the fold of God, the kingdom of God, the family of God. What's interesting is the quote of Psalm 118 in the passage today, because blessed is he speaks not of a king or God who enters into the midst of God's people, but of pilgrims, regular people, who are being blessed as they come to seek God. They saw Jesus as simply one of them, one person who was taking a pilgrimage into Jerusalem, a spiritual journey of significance. And instead, it is, of course, Jesus who will bless them, his people, as they place their faith in him to pilgrim into the kingdom of heaven, only in and through Christ. So much was right in this scene, and yet so much was not. The excitement, the passion, and the fervor of a crowd perhaps this will make sense to you, at times can become a distraction to what is really important and what is really going on. Here's James Edwards. He writes, Mark is warning against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. Perhaps the warning to the church today then would be this, that our expression full of zeal and passion and all these things towards God can actually lack in true understanding and true worship of him at all. I wonder what was in the minds of the people crying, Hosanna in the highest. My hope and prayer for them would be the same for those in this room who do not yet know Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord, that they came to know him as the one who came to save them. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is not about a grand king's entrance and procession to his throne, a march to his kingdom. His entry into the world was in an animal's manger for crying out loud. And his entry here into Jerusalem's gates is on a donkey for crying out loud. If it's not getting to you, humility marks this king. Mark tells us plainly, the entry is more about Jesus going to the temple to fulfill the purposes of the temple than it is about becoming the king of Jerusalem. The place of sacrifice would no longer be needed for the once-for-all sacrifice Jesus had finally come. May we not be driven by mindless zeal and meaningless passion but filled with hope and joy and adoration of God in knowing that his son Christ came and died for us. Let's pray and reflect on what God has taught us today.